Blog Talk Radio. I stroll through the pictures What I've left behind You once again I'm locked up in memories They all intertwine The memories living In my mind I know tomorrow Cause that dawn will come You will never know Just what you've done Good evening, good evening, good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us tonight on NASCA, Stop Child Abuse Now radio show. And NASCA stands for the National Association of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse. I'm your host tonight, Dr. Nancy, and I'm with my wonderful co-host tonight, Miss Annie. And it's a pleasure for us to serve you tonight. Uh, I like to start first off with reading the NASCA statement, the mission statement. And if I may do that right now, it will be my honor. We have a single purpose at NASCA to address issues related to childhood abuse and trauma, including sexual assault, violent or physical abuse, emotional trauma, and neglect, and we do so with only two goals. One, educating the public, especially as related to helping society get over its taboo of discussing childhood sexual abuse, presenting facts showing child abuse to be a pandemic, worldwide problem that affects everyone, and offering hope and healing through numerous paths, providing many services to adult survivors of child abuse and information for anyone interested in the many issues involving prevention, intervention, and recovery. Tonight we're on scan number 3283. And again, it's a pleasure to have you guys join us. Um, Hello, Annie. How are you? Hello, Annie. Could you hear me? Oh, sorry, I was muted. I was talking. Hello, I'm doing well. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, I'm doing great. Just, you know, had a long day today, but, you know, thank God I made it through. I'm glad I made it through. (laughs) How are you doing? I'm doing really well, really well. I was very productive today. Oh, that's good. That's always good. Yeah. Okay. Hey, well, you know, when we do our open panel without a guest, um, 
what we like to do sometimes is just talk about different topics, um, and we open up the mic to allow other people to come on and share a topic that they may want to address, uh, any thoughts that they have, uh, anything like that. Um, again, if nobody shows up tonight, then we'll probably close off the show a little earlier, but um, if hopefully we have some people join us tonight, we won't have to do that. Um, I was just going to talk a little bit about, you know, um, healing from sexual trauma, you know, and how conflict it could be as you're going through the healing process. Um, you know, it takes a lot of time to recover. and We definitely have to work on being gentle with ourselves. Sometimes we're like, well, what's wrong with me? Why, why can't I recover? Uh, but we have to remember that there are steps uh, that we can take to help support our recovery, you know. And uh, whether you're seeking to uh, recover on your own or you go in the path of getting therapy and treatment and support in your recovery, there are steps and there's definitely a process that uh, can help you get there. But just, you know, being gentle with ourselves and understanding that uh, everyone has a differing. And it's okay as long as you're doing the steps to recover. Mm-hmm. And some people go the therapy way. What's your thought about that, Annie? Um, as far as um, recovering, doing therapy, have you ever tried any forms of therapy in your recovery? I have. And I haven't had great success with therapy. I think because the people... I ended up with, they weren't experts in childhood sexual assault, and they weren't ready for me. I had one woman tell me I didn't need any help. Imagine. What? (laughs) You're fine. (laughs) Yeah, she said that. But, um, yeah, I've been through quite a few. My, My most recent therapist, and I'm still with because I find help with that, although I don't go very often. It's probably been a year. But anyway, he does cognitive behavioral therapy, and I found that helpful. But the, the thing I found most helpful is group therapy, peer-to-peer. Peer-to-peer groups where you just talk about childhood sexual assault and people tell their stories and you get a chance to tell yours in a in an anonymous group setting. That's the kind of, um, I call it group therapy. That was group therapy. <laughs> I did that for many years and it really helped me. I've heard a lot of people say that um, that they, the peer support therapy really was helpful. The group therapy was very helpful. So I'm glad that you did mention that. Um, have you ever had a therapist who was probably a little bit harsh or didn't really know how, had maybe shared with you that they have never experienced, that that kind of pulled you away or pushed you away from doing therapy in any way when you were younger? Or when did you start therapy anyways? Like what age group? I put my toes into it when I was, like, just out of college, but then I didn't do any more. I certainly needed it because I had a lot of mental illness going on, but I didn't do any more for many, many years. And then when I finally started, I, I wasn't even in touch with the sexual assault that 
when I first started therapy. That only started to come out in my 40s when I had memories because someone else in my family started talking about it. And so as soon as that person started talking about it, it was like, pow, of course, yes, that happened to me. And all the memories came back. So then, then after I retired from working, because I became very, very ill, um, I started therapy for the sexual assault. And the first therapist turned me on to the peer-to-peer group. And that was wonderful. The therapist himself didn't help me much. Did, um how did you, did you ever try to vet your therapist, like trying to understand that they, what type of background they had in it? Like, did it matter to you if they had been through it sometimes? I never did it? that, no. They, no. they assigned, I'm in one of those HMOs, and they assigned me, the psychiatrist assigned me to the therapist that they wanted me to go to. And the last one, the guy that does cognitive behavioral therapy, I was assigned to that because he was a specialist in codependency. And my my psychologist or psychiatrist felt that I had a problem with that. So you connect um that was his specialty. Oh wow. Do you connect codependency with sexual abuse now as you have so much experience and you're an expert in your own field? Do you connect it? Do you see how it can, how it did have an effect on you in the area of codependency? Oh, I think so, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I, uh, yeah, definitely. Codependency and willingness to be abused are results. And the the will not willingness is not willingness but unwillingness to fight back. I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and enter into abusive relationships with men, women, friendships. A lot of that. Yes. 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 <laughs> yeah, I I ended up being abused at work and at home, and um, I think because. Of my personality, I'm a very easygoing person, and um, people are able to be mean to me, and I don't say anything. Well, to me, it would be rude to say, "Hey, you're being <laughs> mean," you know. And so I don't say anything, and because I don't say anything, then they just get meaner, you know. So that's not a good strategy, not to say anything. I need to object and remove myself from the presence of anyone who's speaking to me abusively because I don't accept that anymore. I don't accept abusive talk. I love that. I um, I can agree with you um, as far as attracting abusive personalities that are like mean girls, um, bullies. Yes. Been abused for some reason. It's like, you feel like you attract abusive, mean personalities that always want to abuse you or neglect you or treat you different or, you know, um, how do you how do you deal with that? Do you have, like, how have you dealt with it in the past or even now setting healthy boundaries? Because 
it's hard, even just as an adult. I find myself in these situations where I'm like, how did I end up here again with this crazy abuse, the spirit of abuse? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I kept doing, I'm sure. Um, the people I ended up marrying weren't very good to me. And um, even when I was a little kid, when I looked back, my best friend was verbally abusive to me. And that was like, I guess it's because that's what I felt comfortable with. My mother was extremely verbally abusive. And so that was the normal. And I guess when I, I didn't have a friend, and then when this person started to befriend me, and was mean to me, I guess I felt comfortable with that. I can see that. Not anymore. I can see that. Not anymore. Yeah, I can see that. You know, you you surround yourself, or not on purpose, but, you know, coming up and being around abused, you think it's normal. You start to normalize it. And you're like, oh, this this is what I'm used to. This is normal not that it's healthy and it's not that it's right but that's what you become you you get used to that so that that is very hard very challenging to break and that's why having a support system and having therapy can be very helpful and very very beneficial through that um you know trauma a lot of people they don't really understand what what trauma is but you know trauma is is very um is a very sensitive topic because trauma things could be traumatic not just sexually you could you could go through trauma from falling from a bike um i mean and we're talking about sexual abuse as a, on a different scale but you know we have to be again gentle with ourselves to understand that when you experience anything that is a shock to your system is unwanted behavior is not safe. It can it could create um, a sense of insecurity and it can become a very traumatic um, experience. Now, the impacts of sexual trauma, if they go untreated, it could be really it could become long term, you know, and it could really cause really difficult mental health struggles in a person's life. Many times it could really affect your sleep. It can affect your emotions, the way that you regulate your emotions. You may find that you know people who are just, like, ready to jump off the hatchet in two seconds if you say something that may offend them or they may find it offensive. All of a sudden, they're catty, ready to fight and create a big drama. And a lot of times those those emotions, that, that inability to regulate their emotions is connected with um, the impact of trauma from sexual abuse. Many times people will will start disassociating. You know, you, you'll deal with disassociation. Um, and also, you know, it, it pretty much splits you and separates you from reality. Um, in the area of intimacy, some people struggle having intimate relationships with their partners. Um, and, um, and, and the inability to have meaningful, close relationships with other people. It affects you because you've dealt with like trust issues. It affected your trust, and, um, and it had a big effect on that area of security, you know. Do you ever, do you, 
feel, um, Fanny, that that has, you know, been any of those things have ever been your personal experience? Yes, all of them. I was writing them down because I'm so forgetful. Mental health, definitely, and I believe that my mental health issues, which include bipolar, were caused by the severe trauma I endured as a child, both from verbal abuse and from sexual abuse. Um, Sleep, yes. For years I was terrified to go to sleep because I was abused at night mostly. I I just, I, I didn't want to go to sleep. Absolute terror. And then I would wake up at night and I would see things. It's called persistence of dreams. When you see... Like say I'm dreaming of a monster, I open my eyes and the monster is still there. And I run across the room and the monster is still there. And then finally it fades away. That used to happen to me every night and it was terrifying. Sorry you went through that. That that sounds terrifying. And thank you for sharing that because I'm sure that some of the other um, survivors can hear your words, and it can literally make them say, wow, that sounds like me now. And they feel like they're alone. Yeah. But you just described something that is very traumatic, very scary, and it was very real. And I felt what you said because I remember feeling that. Yeah. What? I don't get it anymore. It doesn't happen to me now. There is hope to get better and to heal. So whoever's listening, just know that there's hope. And if you're going through that, you're not alone. You're not crazy. We believe you. We understand because we have been there. But just like Ms. Annie said, there's hope. You know, there's hope. Why do you think that people don't tell when they're being abused? Well, in my case, I was too little to know what was going on. That's why I didn't tell. However, later, I remember trying to say something to my mother, and and she said to me, oh, never mind, never mind. She wouldn't talk about it, wouldn't listen to it. So, um... She didn't want to talk about so it? So I didn't. Yeah, no, no. And I don't remember ever telling anyone else trying to tell the teachers or anything. I don't remember ever doing that or my grandparents or anything like that. So you didn't try to tell a friend? Not that I recall, no. However, I had a really sad episode in that my best friend from first grade all the way up to fourth grade she suddenly dropped me. And this wasn't the abusive one. This was a nice person. Wow. She suddenly dropped me and never spoke to me again. It's one wow. day, poof, never spoke to me again. I don't know why, but I have a feeling that maybe she was spending the night and my dad bothered her. Because mm. she did spend the night. She did spend the night and I spent the night at her house, you know. And that's, I only see that now and question that now. That never occurred to me. I thought I was inherently bad, and that's why she dumped me. Uh, you know, I, I turned it against myself. It was pretty tragic. And this was your best friend? 
Yes. Wow. How did that feel when you felt like you said that she dumped you? Well, at first I couldn't believe it. I was like, no, this isn't real. But then, then like I said, I felt like I must be real trash. She would dump me like that. And I remember thinking, because she got a new best friend right away, you know how kids are, and someone she spent all of her time with from then on. And I remember thinking, well, well, not that she's not as good as me, but like, you know what I mean? Like, I would be a better best friend than that choice is what I was thinking. I remember that. And um, I had a nervous breakdown not long after that happened. In the fifth grade, I uh, I had a break with reality, and I had a compulsive hand washing. I had strep throat over and over and over and over. It was a real mess. And this so. breakdown was because you lost your friend, or what was the cause? What What do you think triggered that breakdown? <laughs> I do know what triggered it. I do know what triggered it. It was, um, I'm a writer, and I've always been a writer since I was a little tiny kid. I was writing poems. So in the fifth grade, I got the assignment to write a poem. So I wrote a poem about my dog, and I turned it in, and the teacher gave me an F and said it was plagiarism, which I didn't know what that was, and sent me to a principal. The principal explained it to me, and I said, no, I really wrote that. I I fell apart. Me, I was like straight-A student, little Miss Perfect, go to the principal's office. That that was a big, shocking experience, and I think that's uh, that's what broke me. And, you know, I couldn't write for a long time after that because of the shock associated with it. You know, the bad feelings associated with it. It took me a long time to get over that. Stupid teacher. So you so you had a um a gift of writing and and that was almost taken away from you because you know, it was it was like it could have made you shut down completely. You had a gift to yeah. the point that they thought it was too good. It was so good. But you didn't realize, like, it was so good. You thought, you you know, what did you think? That you I didn't were bad really that- understand. I, re- I remember that I just really didn't understand. I didn't know what plagiarism was first, you know. But then finally they said, no, you didn't write it. And I didn't really understand because I said I wrote it. Right. Didn't really get that they didn't believe me. And it's like being called the that was, I remember my parents, my mom had to come get me from the principal's office. Oh, remember that? Right. Uh, and it's like being called a liar. And that's why a lot of people don't talk yeah. about things that are going on. Imagine you're telling the truth and they're saying, no, you're a liar. I would want them to show me where yeah. this poem was written, by who. Yeah. Wish I had that poem today. I know what it was called. It was called Red, because that was the name of my dog. 
So I don't know what it, how it went. I didn't remember that. Uh, what was the name of the poem? Sorry? What was the name of the poem you said? Red, R-E-D, Black. because that was the name of my dog. He was a oh, red what? setter. It's a great dog. So the poem was about your dog? Yeah. <laughs> that was so sweet. Was your dog your best friend? Hmm. I would have to say my cat. After my best friend left, I didn't get a new best friend until eighth grade. So I went many years, well, it was during the psych psych break, but uh, I didn't have a friend. I had a brother who I was pretty close to, and I would say he was probably my, my best friend because we were almost the same age one year apart, and we would play together. Oh, so he was your best friend. I wanna um yeah. I wanna um share. Thank you for sharing that. I really um. So wait a minute. You said your cat was your best friend. Yeah, I know. And then I changed it to my brother. It's close, but I have to say today my brother is. I'm still very close to that brother. And the cat died, so. Well, that was good. So now this cat best friend was when you were a child, correct? Yes. Okay. I I was in fifth grade when I had the breakdown. You remember having the breakdown? I remember the compulsive hand washing. I remember that feeling that, no, I can't stop. can't stop. There's no way. Um, I remember that. It was a horrible thing. The OCD that just forces you to do it. I'm sorry? Did you see a doctor for the compulsive hand washing? No, it was during my mental breakdown and my strep throat. And no, my, well, I think I went for strep throat because I think they gave me antibiotics. And I remember my mother putting gloves on and saying I had chapped hands. So she was in denial about it. She didn't let the doctor know what was going on. Um, Yeah, I kept getting the strep throat (coughs) over and over again. I don't know how. I guess strep throat is one of those things that that your mental health can affect. Definitely. I mean, you know, our immune systems can be affected by our mental health. Our mental health can affect our immune system. Like if we're always uh, stressed, we get sick. Stress causes a lot of illness. It causes a lot, stress. I mean, you're a child, so you don't realize it's stress, but I'm sure being abused and having been through any type of level of abuse and nightmares and all of those things when you're a child, and nobody understands. Nobody understands, and we don't know how to express what we're going through. It creates a lot of stress in the body, and it keeps the body ill. Yeah. Yep. So now, the child and as an adult, you know, 
as a child, as an as an adult. I wanted to to share something. Um, you know, some of the impacts of sexual trauma they may include mm-hmm. they can include some of these uh, things right here: internalized sense of shame, where we may feel like you know it's embarrassing because we're participating in it. You know, we're guilty by association. We allowed it. Now, we're we're trying to figure out we just as bad. We're just as sneaky because they told us not to tell or, you know, whatever have you. Everybody has a different way of viewing it because they experience it in a different way. But basically, internalized sense of shame comes with sexual abuse, sexual trauma. Okay? Post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, a lot of people deal with PTSD, um, and, um, you know, some of that includes that sexual assault PTSD. So uh, some people say it's just called PTSD, and some people say sexual assault, uh, where you may smell something, hear something. If somebody touches your hand a certain way or, or your shoulder or something, or if that's a word that the abuser used to say, uh, that's called sexual assault PTSD. But, um, you know, PTSD, and, and, you know, a lot of times people may – also deal with depression. Depression is very common. Um, a lot of people will be like, I don't know, I'm just dealing with depression. I'm always feeling depressed. And we just remind them, like, you went through a traumatic event. You went through a severely traumatic event. Depression, may, you know, sometimes, like you said, you didn't remember some of those things, but then all of a sudden it came out, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Sexual disorders, there are different sexual disorders. You may overly like sex severely, uh, or you may just not like sex at all, you know. Um, and some people have sexual issues with their, um, you know, with their private parts where um, for women it might clench up their vagina and might clench up and it be tight and, uh, and they're not able to have intercourse with their partners. Um, so, you know, a lot of people, they may deal with eating disorders, they feel like they're not beautiful, they're not good enough, they're not this enough, and they may overeat or not eat at all. And so a lot of young uh, kids, adult people, deal with eating disorders at, on different levels of the spectrum as far as too much or too li- or not enough. Um, low self-esteem, that's a lingering effect from being a sexual abuse survivor, um, you know, going through the trauma of it, not the survivor, the survivor part of it. You know, you you consistently work on it, but at that traumatic part of it, um, some of the effects are you battle with with um, low self-esteem, abuse. That's one of the things you may battle with: substance abuse, uh, feeling like you need to take more pills or take more alcohol or whatever have you. Right? Uh, a lot of people have gastrointestinal disorder, they have gastro intestinal issues. They're like, you know, they have a lot of issues with their stomach, with their gut. Um, or they have issues with pain and, and stuff like that. Um, that. That's very common, unfortunately. And then struggles with understanding what sexual intimacy is in, in relationships, what's a healthy sexual intimacy in a relationship. And like I said earlier, that vascular um, disease where you just feel pain in your body, pain in your neck, pain in your back, um, and stuff like that. Have you experienced any of those things? Yes. Um, yes, I have. I have experienced, like, what do they call that, muscle memories? Um, 
from abuse. And something that happens to me is that when part of my body, like, starts to, I don't know, remember, it will jerk, have a jerk response, big, too. Like, my leg will fly up in the air or my arm will fly up. And that's that's what my body does. I know there's a name for that, and I can't remember what it is. But the, it's just involuntary movement that happens. I can even think about my father, and it happens. So it's something my body and my mind triggers, jerk response. I still have it, but I don't have it as much as I used to, that's for sure. So did you, um, when did you experience that? Like, do you remember when you started feeling this, like, experience? I think I had that all my life, jerk response. Um, I think it's a lot bigger now than it used to be when I was young. But, um, yeah, I remember having it. Startle, that's what they call it. It's a startle response where, like, a noise uh, that'll do it really big time. If I hear like a sudden noise, I'll jump. But it's also my own thoughts. Or sometimes when I'm relaxing, like have a pain in a certain part of my body, and then it'll jump. So. Symptom of child sexual assault. Right. I want to um, I want to acknowledge um, you know, well, I want to kind of go over a couple of ways to help us heal from sexual trauma, and some of those ways Great. are going to be. I'm going to share one right here, which is acknowledge what happened. You know, a lot of times we have a struggle with acknowledging what happened and saying, "Look, this happened," and. I, personally, I feel that, like, when we don't face it and we don't address it, then it's, it affects us more. It's harder for us to win uh, and get past when we're not really willing to acknowledge mm-hmm. what we went through. Um, and it comes from, you know, some people are dealing with shame. It's, it's not easy. So we always say, okay, make sure you're gentle with yourself. Yes, it's important to be gentle with yourself. But I, I really do feel that when we don't acknowledge it, it has, like, more control over us. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah. Yes, I, I think that the more, the more I got the thoughts about it out, sharing them, in peer-to-peer groups and writing about them. I wrote a novel about childhood sexual assault. It's not my story. It's a novel. But that process um, really familiarized my brain with what happened to me. And I think, in a way, I'm desensitized now. I think that's what I did. I had it in my mind so much for so long that it desensitized me and I no longer feel the panic that mm. I used to feel just thinking about it. Right. Well, I think now I can talk about it openly in public. 
Wow. That's amazing because, yeah. you know, it takes, it takes, it's a process. It takes a while to get to that place, but I think you're right, Miss um, Annie. It's so important to talk about it. When we talk about it, we're able to learn about it and we're able to ask for help. Um, you know, and then we create a support system, like here being here on NASA, you know, the ability to be able to come together and say, hey, me too, or I also experienced that, I went through that. It creates a sense of community, and it just reminds us that we're not alone. Because it can be very isolating mm-hmm. and very lonely, dark place to feel like that. I think it's very sad. I know for years and years I was so isolated. I was so full of shame. I didn't have any friends. I did go to work, but after work I just hid in my house. I I was just mm-hmm. just so filled with shame. Mhm. Mhm. Well, wow. so you felt shame. I don't feel that now. Yeah, I no, felt no. shame. Like it was, I was guilty. It was my fault. I was a bad person. No one would want to know me if they knew. Mm-hmm. I was yucky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I, I think that many of us can. I said, you know, a lot of times when you're sitting there and you're participating, unfortunately, in the abuse, you start feeling guilty, like if there's something wrong, and 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 in no way possible, thing wrong, you know, um, you know, right. especially um, if you're a child. Um, you know, period, you didn't do anything wrong, but especially when you're a child and you're put in a place to have to participate in, in that type of abuse, because really that's what it is, is abuse. Um, I, I wanted to, for us to talk a little bit about some of the triggers that are associated with trauma, you know, and, and they, they're really triggers, um, and they become a, a trigger response. Trauma, and so um, some of them would be um, sexual or close, intimate physical touch. Uh, that can be a trigger. Um, specific colognes or perfumes, and we talked a little bit about that earlier. How triggers, you know, some smells can bring on a memory and just take you to a place, you know, a place to remember really bad things, right? Um, certain foods, certain drinks. Um, you know, I shared a few times in the past that when my mom came to the United States, um, I had to stay back home in Costa Rica and wait for her to get settled. Uh, my mom left me with someone she trusted, and this person became very, um, emo- very, very just emotionally and physically, this was very emotionally abusive. I don't know what type of abuse to call it. I guess. She, she was she was abusive. That's the only thing I could think of. Um, and at one point, she told me to eat up, you know, all my food. And, and, again, a lot of kids that have eating disorders, they went through some of that where you're forced to eat all your food and you have to be careful doing that because then some of these kids, they can't stop eating. You build a codependency to food. And so she wanted me to mm. eat all my food, all my soup, and at the time – I was so full. I really had no space. I felt like throwing up. 
So when she turned around and left the room, I put it under the sink. I was in the kitchen. I put it under the sink. And I forgot about this soup for a few days. I I swear this soup could have been like a week old because it was a few days. And she found the soup one day. I guess she was looking for something under the sink and found the soup. And she made me eat the soup. And um, my. When I got to that soup, that soup was bright orange. And um, it was like very bright orange. And she forced me to eat it. And I was so sick. I was throwing up all over the place. And my throw up was orange, the soup was orange. And my mom, um, years prior, had made these curtains because my mom used to sew. And my mom had these curtains in the kitchen that were bright orange. I could not look at the color orange. So even today, um, there's this lady that wears orange all the time. And I I didn't realize. I was like, why is it that I don't ever wear orange? Like, what is why? I think it looks so pretty on her. And then I thought back and I remembered why I had an issue with the color orange. I mean, the color orange never did anything to me, but it was that memory of that trauma associated mm-hmm. and connected to the food and to that experience of being just violently ill from that soup. So um, that definitely can be triggered. Um, you know, from music, or certain songs could get triggered. If, if some some abusers may play a certain song while they're abusing the victim to dilute the noise or whatever is going on. Um, some people are just sick, you know. Uh, or it just could be a song that reminds you of the words, right, of that survivor, of that pain. Um, you know, loud noises um, startle people sometimes. I have a client, I do a lot of counseling sessions with, with people, I have a client who experienced a suicide loss in front of her, and when she hears anything like a loud pop, you know, it startles her because he took his life with with a mm. firearm, and so um, oh, in front okay. of her. and so there's certain things that can trigger people, you know, a loud noise, uh, seeing someone that looks like the predator can trigger somebody. I mean, you see somebody that looks like the predator, it's Severely traumatic, right? You, you can imagine that. Um, being in a similar setting as the trauma, if you're in the area of where the trauma occurred, I mean, you know, or in a similar place of where the trauma occurred, it could have been a pool, or it could have been a boat, or it could have been a anything, an office, closed space. Some people in an elevator. Some people are close to claustrophobic, and that that thought of that place can be severely triggering um, and, you know, just experiencing similar emotions um, to what they felt during that traumatic event can definitely take them there, um, you know. Have you ever had anything mm-hmm. in particular triggered to you that brought you to that type of place? Yes. Um, I wanted to comment on two you mentioned on the music and on the similar setting. I'll start with the music. Um, I remember I, music was like a big refuge for me. I had a little record player and I would play records and I didn't have any records so I would play my parents' records. And my dad had this one record um, 
Nancy Sinatra singing with her father, Frank Sinatra. I thought it was sexual between them in the record. I don't know. I'm sure it's not. But in my mind, to me, that meant that it was like what was happening to me. So can't listen to Nancy Sinatra. I don't have a problem with Frank Sinatra, I think because I knew him before that song. But I I can't listen to Nancy Sinatra without feeling kind of sick. And and then and then being in a similar setting, um unfortunately I was abused in the bathroom many times and I have a hard time taking a shower. I don't want to take a shower. I don't want to go in there. I don't want to do it. And so it's always a struggle with me because of the setting. One thing I did was get a see-through curtain. That really helped. A curtain I could see through so no one could sneak up on me. That's a great idea. That, that was a great idea. Thank I you. I thought for so. I didn't think of it for 60 years, but it sure worked. <laughs> I used to be scared taking a shower in the bathroom. I never really thought about that. I also went through most of the abuse in the bathroom, uh, and I would just be scared. Like when I was uh, washing my hair, my eyes were closed. I was scared that somebody was in the bathroom or somebody would be coming in. Never thought about that. So that was good. Thank you for sharing that. Okay. That was really helpful. You're welcome. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a problem to this day. I, I, You know, I work on it with things like sweet-smelling bath and body work, you know, something that makes it inviting to take a shower. Um, I also shower in my outside shower with my bathing suit on, and um, that I like that a lot. I happen to have a shower on the wall next to my jacuzzi, and I can shower outside. I'm not scared of that. Oh, Annie, next to your jacuzzi. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> That's right. Go, I know girl. how to treat myself well. <laughs> <laughs> well deserved, my darling. Well deserved. I think it's really important to do things to treat yourself. I think that we forget to do that. Like we deserve those things. You know, you work hard, and sometimes we leave ourselves for last, but we deserve that. Yeah. Yeah, especially when we have young children and there's just so little time left over for ourselves. Or if we have other kinds of dependence. Yeah, no. Or if you're just a giver, always volunteering, always helping, always giving back. Um, I think it's important for us to, to, to have that balance to make sure that we also add ourselves in that giving back arena. Because for me, giving back, um, it's therapeutic um, when I'm dealing with depression, when I'm fighting or trying to get through a depressive episode. For me, giving back helps me feel just a sense of purpose, and it helps me feel like I'm worthy, like I'm not just existing, but I'm also 
giving back to the world and I'm giving back to others. And it just helps me to feel better about myself. Uh, if I'm struggling with low self-esteem or sadness or anything, it just helps me. So I, I like giving back and volunteering and doing things to help others. But like I said, it's important mm-hmm. for us to do those nice things for ourselves because we deserve it too. Yes, we do. I have a quote from Buddha. I don't know what book or anything, but it says, um, you can search the entire universe for someone who is more worthy of your love and affection than you are yourself, and you will never find that person. That was good. That was beautiful. I have that on my bathroom wall. You will never find anybody that deserves it more than you. And a lot of us struggle with accepting that we're worthy. Do you have a poem? Um, And we can give you a little time to get it together and figure out which poem. Do you have a poem at all that you would like to share um, that has to do with self-worth or encouraging somebody that they're worthy or that they're beautiful or they're loved? Something about love or encouraging? No, I can't say that I have written anything (laughs) encouraging. Most of my stuff's dark. (laughs) Okay. Um, So, no, I don't have a, a song, though. I know a very encouraging song. That's Me, myself, and I, we're all in love with you. Myself and I, we're all in love with you. We just think those. Oh no, I'm sorry. I can't forget. I can't remember how it goes. I'm sorry. I haven't okay. sung that song for a long time. But it's it's a nice about you know accepting yourself. Oh wow. Myself and I. Right. So it's a nice song about accepting yourself. We have another caller on. Oh, let wow. Me, let yeah. me um, put that in. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, okay, there we go. Welcome. Hey, it's Victoria. Hi. Hi, Victoria. Hi, Hi how grandmother. You doing? Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. You got six puppies. Two two girls and uh, four boys. (laughs) Oh, wow. Uh, (laughs) They're a doggy family. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. My daughter was on the phone and she told somebody, she goes, yeah, my mom and dad had puppies. (laughs) 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 I go, we didn't have them. The dog did. <laughs> How you do that? Have you been listening to the show, Victoria? No, I just got on. I saw that. Um, I just got on. Um, my granddaughter came over to look at the puppies, so I couldn't get on right away. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming. Yeah, we appreciate you. We're just talking about the different um, triggers. That's what we're just kind of getting getting through. Talking okay. about like some of the response 
to some of the triggers from, you know, um, we like I shared, okay, one of them was food or drinks, music and songs, loud noise, um, mm-hmm. you know, um, sexual intercourse or contact or intimate relationships. So I shared that I, when I was younger, I was forced to um, eat like a week old soup from this babysitter. Mm-hmm. Um, and the soup was like a very bright orange. And so I was traumatized mm-hmm. by the orange. Every mm-hmm. time I saw the color orange, uh, it was a mm-hmm. severe trigger for me. And I didn't understand as an adult why I stayed mm-hmm. away from the color mm-hmm. orange. And then, Annie, you shared. What did you share if you want to give us a, a synopsis mm-hmm. about was it music or what else? The music, about some music that I used to listen to when I was little that totally gives me the creeps because I thought it had incestuous meaning. Yeah. Songs. Right. Yeah. right. And then also I had... Um, Similar setting would trigger me. I was abused a lot in the bathroom, and so I have a hard time mm-hmm. taking a shower or brushing my teeth or mm-hmm. doing anything in there, really. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, when I first got away from my biological father, he did a lot of horrible things to me in the bathroom. And uh, so I did the same thing. Matter of fact, um, I would only go to the bathroom once a day. Um, because I could, just couldn't be out in there, couldn't be in the bathroom at all. It was horrible. Uh, wow. And, and, and you know, I, again, I just want to say thank you guys for the free of transparency and the level of just honesty talking about this because there's somebody going through it right now. Like, I, my sexual abuse from my father was also in the bathroom. And mm-hmm. so, and I, Oh, Miss Annie, I never thought about that. I never yeah. thought about that. I didn't like being in the bathroom. And then Miss Annie also shared that, um, did you say you now you have uh, clear curtains? I don't want to quote you. What did you say about yes. curtains? Because that was a great piece of advice. I thank you for that. Yeah, what did I you put up us? a curtain you can see through, and I just feel so much less fear because I can see out into mm-hmm. the bathroom room and nobody's in yeah. there. I have to, I have to keep before the door. I, I was hidden. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I still have to keep the bathroom door open and the shower the shower curtain oh, open so I can make sure nobody's coming in on me. And my biological father was into S and M, so there was a lot of horrible things that happened. Oh. Now what's S M S and M? Sadomasochism. Uh, torture, um, and matter of fact, certain words um, would trigger me. Um, you know, he was a master, I was a slave, I had to sign a sexual slave contract. Mm. Wow. We need to get you on the show. I need to interview you so I can, mm-hmm. we can get, yeah. um, mm-hmm. one of these days, we need to be, a, be our special guest. Yeah, um, and then um, he, um, like certain words, well, the word love really triggered me because in my family, the word love meant you owe me, and it was used to be sexual, you know. You owe me sex. That was basically what I translated that, and he would call it making love. So when I ended up going to the police, the police officer asked me about the night 
um, that, that ended up motivating me to go to the place. And he said, um, uh, what happened when you went over there? And I said, well, my dad made love to me. He said, hold on a minute. He stopped the recorder and rewound it and went back to this place. And he goes, I'm going to ask you about a different way. So he went back on the recorder and he goes, when you went over to your dad's house, did you want to have sex with him? And I go, absolutely not. <laughs> and that's came up in the recording for my testimony instead of, you know, he made love to me. But that's what I had to call it, you know. I'm sorry that you had to experience that. That is, that is, um, that's severe. You know, for a child to explain it, the way that they're taught. Just like well, if I call the thing was, this is why we had a lot of shame because I didn't escape from him until I was 21. And the worst part of it was when I left my husband and I had a six-month-old child. I was 20 years old. And so I didn't escape from him until I was 21. And he kept saying, you know, he had taken pornography in me and said that he was going to show my grandparents who raised me and that it would kill them. He was going to show my friends. And the cops wouldn't do anything because um, I signed a sexual life contract. And he said that I was an adult, so everybody would think that it was mutual. And they throw me in jail, too, and um, had pornography in the closet and the sexual assault contracts and made me up in costumes, just a lot of shit. And, you know, it would take me into uh, pornography shops and, you know, call them sex toys, and I call them torture devices, you know, and he called everything his fantasy, and I call it my nightmares. So, yeah, there were a lot of, you know, a lot of words like, you know, he would say, he's my Lord. And, you know, so a lot of things trigger me. A lot of things. <laughs> and I, you know, I'm 61 years old. That's 40 years ago. And I still, you know, or I'll smell a scent or just feel like from the same place, kind of deja vu feel. And, and I'll get, you know, but I never did it before I started therapy. That that's what it was. It was just like, oh, I'm crazy. You know, because I didn't know and I didn't have a lot of memories because I ended up with MPD. So I didn't have a lot of memories, but my body remembered and my mind remembered and the altars remembered. So it was very confusing. And I kept calling myself crazy, you know, tons of drugs. And until this one woman said, you're not crazy. What was done to you was crazy. You just reacted normal to the crazy things that were done to you. Right. You know, no, you're not crazy. And we were talking no. about earlier. A lot of times we'll be called crazy, or you know, mm-hmm. I mean, those things make people shut down and not tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Matter of fact, I went into a psychiatrist. I went into the psychiatric ward because I was suicidal. I was in there just interviewing to get in the psych ward, and I was scared of myself because I was scared when I wanted to kill myself. I wanted to die, and. uh I didn't really want to die. I just didn't live in pain and memories and all that crap because I started having body memories and visual memories. It called my nightmares, and then I also called them day mirrors, <laughs> you know. And yeah. uh, anyway, I'd go in, and I went in this one time, and he kept coming back after me, and I wouldn't remember. I knew I was afraid of him, but I couldn't figure out why, so I just figured I was crazy. And uh, then he hurt me again, and a different altar developed. 
and then I'd forget. So, you know, I had always, you know, he'd always come back in my life. And uh, so I was trying to tell the psychiatrist, and she goes, oh, he must have enjoyed it or he wouldn't have kept going back to him, you know, and and uh, you would have escaped, you would have got away from him quicker. That's why I call it escape, you know, better women and um, child abuse victims and any kind of victims, you know, they don't even call it I left him. It's I escaped from him. We escape with our lives and sometimes with our, if we're fortunate with our children in their lives, you know, and it is escaping. It's not I left them. <laughs> It's definitely escaping. And, and to sit in that chair and sit there and listen to that psychiatrist who's supposed to be the one that's going to admit me said kinds of horrible things to me. Um, I just wanted to bolt out of there, and, and I felt dying even more than I just when I walked in the door, you know. Okay, sitting in that chair and was able to be admitted. But I had a wonderful psychiatrist that understood MPD, and... Uh, he hit me so much. And so did my psychologist that I saw. And I'm and glad you mentioned that. Mm-hmm. No. What were you going to say? You can finish that thought, please. I said, um, and that was that was back when I was, like, in my early 30s is when I got finally diagnosed with the correct diagnosis of MPD. And um, the difference was, you know, before I'd go in the – psych ward and I'd be crawling around on my hands and my knees and go under a table and I'd be shaking and whimpering, you know, and write down, you know, she's doing that to get attention. And when I had a proper diagnosis for MPD, they'd say she's in an altered state. So I was treated completely differently with those two different diagnoses. Right. You know, I'm sorry, diagnosis I'm for the language disorder. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm glad you said that. Um, Ms. Annie and I earlier were talking about the importance of getting mental health support and not being ashamed to reach out for help and as part mm-hmm. of our recovery. Being able to say, I need some help, and then take mm-hmm. the steps to get some help and not be embarrassed. Don't worry about what people think. Don't, don't worry about what people think, what they're going to say about you, how they're going to judge you. It is okay to reach out for help. Mm-hmm. But also, like, for instance, with that psychiatrist, I didn't even recognize that that was, like, an inappropriate thing to say to a victim, you know. What did you say? um, By saying that, you know, I must have enjoyed it or I wouldn't have stayed so long and I wouldn't have kept going back, you know. Um, You know, so I also want to say, too, part of that is if you don't feel like you're getting help from, you know, a therapist and say you listen to the show like this and say you're not, here, you're not to blame, it's not your fault, you go to somebody that's saying you're to blame, that means you're not going to the right person. And you can switch. I had one friend that said, every time I go to my psychiatrist, I feel that, you know, he's saying the same thing my dad said to me. And I said, well, you need to get a different psychiatrist. And in her mind, she didn't even think of the thought that she could get a different psychiatrist. You know, now they're saying trauma-informed therapists. They never have those terms before right because some people don't have a background in trauma and they're doing therapy and, and people need to stay in their own lane mm-hmm. therapies yeah. need to stay in their lane a lot of therapists won't say that you know you need to see a different person like my psychiatrist 
when um, something really horrible happened, said, um, uh, I came into the hospital, and he says, because um, of what happened, he says, um, I, I'm not trained in what I think is going on with you, so I'm going to have a professional come in and talk with you. And that's where I got a, I got a correct diagnosis and went to a group called Drive for people I dissociated. And they told me I had to see psychiatrist and psychologist, and they gave me a list of people that dealt with people that were diagnosed MPD. And for people that don't know, they've switched to diagnosis. That was multiple personality disorder. And they've switched the diagnosis to DID, dissociative identity disorder. <clears throat> Amy? Yep. yep. So do you, what do you think about that? Do you have any thoughts about that? Um, no, I, I really don't know anything about um, those disorders. I've never been diagnosed with those disorders. Although I have a friend who thinks that I have DID, but mm-hmm. I don't think I have it. So, yeah, no, I don't mm-hmm. know much about it. So what was your experience being with uh, the therapist who didn't have the background versus being with the, the right therapist? that was able to give you those diagnosis for what you had going on? Um, well, that's, I didn't really have crack therapy. I, when I went, um, I went to the police, I basically escaped um, from my biological father with, um, with uh, a woman and a man that he had gotten involved in this whole, uh, quote, fantasy of his. And... Uh, uh, this other woman and man were there, and the crazy shit happened. And me and Miguel decided we were getting hell out of there because uh, he had been drinking and doing a lot of drugs and collapsed in the corner and said, fix me a damn drink, and I was going to do it. And then I go, can you get up? And he kind of slumped back down. He couldn't get up. And I don't know if we said anything to each other or whatever, or we looked at each other and realized we had to get the hell out of there. And... uh the guy didn't want to leave. He was trying to talk to him. We just grabbed him and shoved him in front of his car and went go home. <laughs> and uh, the guy couldn't figure out what was going on, but me and her did. And uh, anyway, we went um, finally got to the police. And uh, so they they sent me to a court ordered group for victims of incest. That basically said, you know. Um, you're a vic- you know, they didn't use victim. You know, um, you were involved in incest, so you have to go to an incest group. The court ordered me because you have a daughter and you are going to abuse her. Yeah. Because that's wow. what they believed back then. That was in 1983. So, you know, you could see why people didn't want to talk about it. <laughs> Uh, all of a sudden, you're, you're a criminal. <laughs> you're going to do it to your kids. You know, you they think about how that makes you feel. And so I was into this with basically people that weren't very trained to deal with any of it. But 
were victims of abuse in there. Matter of fact, I was going to one of the gals watch my watch my daughter, and they said you can't have her watch your daughter. And I said, why not? Well, she's an incest victim. <laughs> I know. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So I did that for a while, and then went to another therapist. That was she was pretty good. But I had this I had the psychiatrist and I would go in the hospital like every three months for thirty or sixty days. And then I got committed to a hospital. And uh fortunately I was married to a man that very supportive and went to a group called the Sexual Violence Center here in Minneapolis. And it was for partners or spouses of people that had M P D or severe disassociation. And he had, got a lot of knowledge about what I was going through, so he'd come and visit me and everything. And um, my, at that time, I had two kids when I married him, and uh, he'd bring the kids out to visit, and even in a state hospital. And I kept telling him, "I'm staying here. I'm never getting out." And he'd go, "Oh no, you're getting out. You're coming home." You know, and everybody out there was nobody. Nobody was visiting them. You know, everybody kind of pretty much left them there, and there's no therapy there in the state hospital. They just give you drugs and let you wander around the property. Um, so I did end up getting out, and then that's when I got in that group Thrive, and they told me that I had to get a professional psychiatrist and psychologist that, that were trained to deal with MPD. And the woman I went to was the head of the um, psychiatry department at the um, Hennepin County Medical Center and also dealt with children that had been sexually abused. So she had a lot of, and she'd go to court, and that was back in, you know, um, when I was in my 30s. So um, she ended up, she was excellent. She worked intensely with me for 13 years. Hmm. And pretty much, you know, call it, um, you know, um, I don't know, but, you know, when all the altars merged or whatever. But basically it was that, the altars all got to tell her what happened and they all wrote journals and stuff and did drawings and got to tell their stories so they no longer, we no longer need to be in separate parts. Well, well, the good thing is um, that there are people out there who, who care. There are adults out mm-hmm. there who care. I wonder yeah. if their counselor also was a survivor because a lot of times survivors are the superheroes behind the case. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, they went through it and their passion comes from surviving. Their passion comes from having a parent or a sister mm-hmm. or a family member or a cousin or somebody or they themselves mm-hmm. personally going through it. So a lot of times when we ask, like, well, why did you go into that field? Why did you you know, feel mm-hmm. this stronger to help others in the area of mm-hmm. sexual abuse because that's a very specialized niche. And most yeah. of the times when I speak to experts, they mm-hmm. are survivors. Mm-hmm. Yep. Matter of fact, a lot of people do go into psychiatry because they want to find out about themselves. And a lot of people that, a lot of therapists that have, or psychiatrists, therapists, whatever, that have it that haven't went to therapy and are survivors, they have so much shame themselves that unknowingly they're passing on that shame to their clients. Wow. Yeah. 
and it's it's sad. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, you're right, and it's true. Um, and you're right. Um, about 20 years ago, when I started, I was studying psychology. It was mm-hmm. to find out about myself. You know, yeah. I um I wanted to find out about me, mm-hmm. and it was very therapeutic when I was doing the classes. Oh yeah. Um, it was very therapeutic. Then I took a break, and then now I'm back in in school again. But mm-hmm. um, it's it's very it's still very therapeutic, and I'm learning a lot. I'm learning some things that are going on even with the times. Some things that are really hard to hear um, mm-hmm. about, but are necessary because it's just a reality of the climate today. And mm-hmm. um, and it's just it's just a lot. But you know, the good thing is that that we keep getting up. Um, I'm just, I'm so proud of us. I'm, I'm, I'm proud of the members of at NAFCA. No, we're not all 100% great. And no, we're not, nobody's perfect. And no, uh, you know, we're not completely all the way healed, delivered, and set free all the way. There's some areas that I think is an everyday um, mm-hmm. process, and it's a daily work that we just continue to put in. And... Mm-hmm. That's that's what makes us wonderful, and that's what does make us great, the fact that we are showing up and we're putting mm-hmm. in the work. Well, everybody's on uh, their own stage of their journey, their own stage, and nobody heals at the same pace, you know, mm-hmm. and nobody right. has the same information to heal. And uh, mm-hmm. in 1985, I escaped from my son's father and ended up going to a better women's shelter and ended up... Um, um, volunteering with the Bad Women's Shelter, and I got a bunch of information as I was volunteering, like you said. And uh, that education not only, like you said, healed me, but it was able to help me help others, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just want to mention, too, that October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And uh, um, I did a event last year, and uh, I had buttons printed up that said, Domestic Violence Children, too. And I just want people to know that when a child witnesses domestic violence, especially in a home, um, that is child abuse. You know? And it a is. lot of women that in the battered women's shelter, when I say that to, it's more shame on top of the shame they already feel. And I make sure to tell them, this is not about you. This is about the abuser. We need to put blame back on the abuser. Stop um, blaming the victims in these types of situations. Um, you know, and, and to tell, you know, the abuser can be a woman or man, you know, the abuser is the one that we have to hold accountable, not the victims, not the children, not the spouse that's being abused or the partner that's being abused. Let's put the blame where it belongs and let's stop, you know, because now um, partners are even in, spouses are even going to jail because the children are in the environment. Or they're taking the children away from the abuse, one and give them to the abuser, you know, if they had a better attorney or more money or, you know, can prove a better case or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. all like that, you know, like it doesn't make sense. And people are like, well, you know, took them to court, whatever, you know, do you feel like you got justice? There's no justice. How can you give somebody justice when your whole life got taken away and they're out working in some society and, you know, and you're in therapy, and you got a label, and they don't. How's that justice? It's not. 
you can never get justice for killing a child's life into adulthood. And people go, do you feel like you're healed? And I said, I feel until I take my last breath. Because I don't want to stop growing and changing and learning. Right. It's my everyday job. Mm-hmm. It is. Everyday job. Yeah, I'm, like I said, I'm I'm just so proud of us, you know, for showing up. And I'm so proud mm-hmm. of us for still doing the work. And it's an yeah. everyday piece of work. So, Miss Annie? Yeah. You got any words? We're almost done, y'all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know you do work. Uh, I know no, you I, I have. I said, I know you over there. I said, I know you over there. You've been putting in the work. you showing up. So I know you putting in the work, too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. I put in, I put in work on my recovery and, um, you know what I do a lot is meditate, and I know Victoria does that too. Meditate just to empty my mind, be, instead of always have a book on audio in my ear, you know, or turn the TV on or something, always having other people's thoughts going in, going in, going in, to, because I know that will drown out my thoughts. Turn that off now. And I sit quietly. And when I go for a walk, I walk silently and just let my mind wool gather. It's supposed to be good for you to wool gather for your mental health. Mm. So walking, walking, exercising. Walking and meditating. Yes, yes. You're right. And you, know, that, you know, a lot of times we feel like, you know, I've got to get to, you know, a better place, we got to get to a better place, but we forget that. There's so many things that we can do. One of the things that uh, I do is uh, gardening. Um, people do crafts. Some people sing. People dance. You know, to just allow ourselves to enjoy life. I mean, every one of us deserves a wonderful life. Matter of fact, the best revenge is to live a good life. That's the best revenge against an abuser because an abuser wants you to continue to be miserable from the abuse they did. So if you're not, then you're winning. If you take your life or if you have a miserable life, the abuser is winning. If you kill the abuser, the abuser wins. Don't let the abuser win. We all have to, we all were born to have a wonderful, fantastic life. And if we don't have that, we need to search out. And like Annie said, just be with yourself in thoughts, you know, because I really believe that all the answers are within ourselves. But unless you sit quietly and really ask yourself, what is my purpose? What do I want to accomplish in life? You know, what makes me happy? Um, and go out and do it, you know. And everybody's like, well, you know, I wish I was rich. I go on a vacation and, you know, that would be my reward, whatever. But you know what? You can do things that don't cost you a fortune. You can know, go to the park. You can look at the trees. You can listen to the birds. You can feed the animals. You know, there's a lot of things you can do that don't cost you a lot of money, but that make you happy and, and make you feel good. And success is all what we think. You know, I used to think success is having a nice car, having a beautiful house, this and that and the other things. But 
you get to define what you get to define what your life is. Don't let anybody else define it for you. Right. You know, keep doing the work, and you know, mm-hmm. but they, I'm proud of us. We have to just yeah. keep being accountable. Um, and that's what, that's all it's about, you know. You know, survivors. I think that we realize that it's a daily work. Um, and it really just takes that accountability for ourselves and for what, how we want to, you know, how do we, what, what is it that we really want to, to leave behind? Are we, do we want to say, hey, we, we've done our part to create this change, or do we want to just stuck in that memory of the past? And I think, um, again, uh, that active work, living life, like, Right now, you know, Annie, you know, you're doing paintings, getting back into your creativity and your paintings and your work. I think it's beautiful taking on that, you know, just that love for your arts. And, you know, Ms. Victoria, you over there having puppies and grandpuppies and, you know, and living (laughs) and helping, you know, life extend, (laughs) I think is beautiful. Uh, and and, and I think stuff, a really good starting I'll, I'll point, a really good starting point is saying, I survived, and that's enough. And that is, a lot of people never did. A lot of people gave up, you know. Um, and, and just the fact that you survived is um, amazing because I always tell people you're really creative. Um, survivors are very creative because we found creative ways to stay alive no matter what it was. But when something isn't working for you anymore, you can make changes. You know, we have choices today. We didn't have choices before. We have choices today. You know, and there's so much on the Internet. No, there wasn't back. You know, there was no Internet. <laughs> when I you was know. back there beginning to heal, you know. You couldn't, deal, you couldn't Google what is DID or MPD. You couldn't Google... You know, what can I do to make me happy? What's a healthy thing to do, you know, in your spare time? Or, you know, I even made a list of all the things I like to do and whenever I'd start panicking or be really depressed, I'd go to that list that was hanging on my wall. Dance, sing, do artwork, write. Um, I journal. I journal a lot. You know, and I I wrote a book and I got a book in the works right now. I'm not writing it. Somebody else is writing it. Congratulations. Yeah, I started reading my journals and I don't know, I just opened it to a page where I was really in a bad space when I wrote it and I ended up just getting down in that bad space again. And I just went, I can't do this. I wanted um, to get my story out there. You know, but um, I just couldn't. And I hid around my writings because I had so much shame. And I really lost a lot of that shame by getting involved with NASCA. I don't know, about 14 years ago, maybe. Um, maybe a little bit more. Um, I, I actually did uh, Google or whatever the heck it was back then, um, Adult Survivors of Child Abuse. I was in a MySpace group. <laughs> so that dates me. Okay. Um, incest Survivors. 
and I was kind of telling my story back then. And this one woman wrote to me, and she said, um, you shared your story about being a survivor and being very young, and was asking me all these questions about my life and other things, and I had time, so I Googled different things. For her. Google, but I looked at different websites and stuff when she was asking me questions. Then I didn't hear for, for a long time. And uh, she wrote back to me, and this, I still get a frog in my throat. She wrote back to me and says, uh, I just want to thank you for telling your story and for sharing all that information with me because now my four-year-old granddaughter will never be molested by her father again. Oh, wow. And, and she took, you know, got the child safe. Mm-hmm. Well, that's I when I really realized that was my purpose in life. Because this because. is really happening. This is we think that it happened to us back then, and it's over. It's over because we we are over over uh, that season as far as it physically happening today. But it's not over for some people. For some people, it's no. just starting. It's just beginning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just beginning. Um, yeah. Again, I just wanted to say we're on scan number three two eight three. I know I should have said it a long time ago again, but. I just wanted to remind uh, those who are listening, again, that they're not alone. Um, we are the picture of hope. We're not perfect and, and, and by any means uh, at all. Uh, but we are working actively on our recovery, and we're taking control of our lives. We're taking steps to take control back of our lives completely. And it's a daily work. Um, we're all doing, actively doing the work to be able to walk in our healing and in our recovery. Again, we're on scan number 3283. I'm your host, Dr. Nancy, tonight, and I'm with my wonderful co-host, Miss Annie, and uh, wonderful uh, sister of ours from NASCA, who's also a host on the show, uh, Miss Victoria. And we're all hosts. We're all hosts. Uh, but tonight we're coming together on a panel, and uh, we're having a wonderful topic. I just want to thank you all for joining us tonight. Thank you all for sharing your stories and for sharing uh, and words of encouragement. And we're down to an hour and 30 minutes, so if anybody else would like to say anything else to close, please do. I just want to say that all these are archives. So, if you you know, if you've listened to the show or other ones, you know, there's, there's that many shows. Whatever number you said is how many shows we have archived. <laughs> so there's a lot of shows you can listen to. And there's a lot of information on all the shows. Thank you. And I want to say we're not down to an hour and 30 minutes. We're down to a minute and 30 seconds. Now we're down to one minute. And anybody else, Ms. Annie? <laughs> I will add that the Stop Child Abuse Now radio show is on Five nights a week, Monday through Friday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. It runs an hour and a half. And the public is always welcome to call in and ask questions and participate with our hosts and uh, tell your story. We're always looking for people who are interested in telling their story. And so if that's something you think you might want to do, give us a call. Um to you, Dr. Nancy. Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much. Again, thank you all for joining us tonight. Thank you guys for um, for sharing your stories and your transparency. You all have empowered and poured into me, and I just hope that I, I poured something back into y'all. 
And for everyone else, we just want to wish you all a good night. Thank you for joining. Thank you for watching. Another tomorrow. Cause that's gone.